This morning, our text comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 1. And that may be an unfamiliar place. So if you go to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, and just take a left, the next book is Malachi, going backwards. If you're using your pew Bible, it's page 801. And these may not make sense when I read them together, but hopefully they'll make sense by the end of the sermon. I'm going to read Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And then I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 17. So those are pretty close together. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and 17. Malachi verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to to the Christ, 14 generations. You can... Be riveted on those few verses. We'll take a moment to think about that, and then we'll look through them together this morning. I'm assuming by now most of you have uh, looked at Google Earth. Have that on your computer. You've located uh, something that you wanted to see from it. It's really a, a cool uh, application of technology. And what I like most about Google Earth is how it begins. You know, you click on and you see the Earth. You know, you have outer space and you have Earth and it's kind of rotating. And then it has the search bar and you type in, you know, your address or what you want to see. And when you, when you type it in, uh, it, the earth begins to slowly rotate. And then it, it brings you down to the United States. And then it, it brings you down to North Carolina. And then it brings you down to Wilmington, North Carolina. And then when I type in my address, it brings me down to 1012 Primavera Court. And I can see my two cars, you know, parked in my driveway. And it's just amazing how you go from this huge sort of outer space picture and type in this one tiny little address and it just begins to bring it down slowly but surely to this little plot of ground. And in this sermon, I want to zoom in on a particular address, which is Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Because we're beginning a series today in the book of Malachi, which will take us the next couple of months But I think if I just started with Malachi verse 1, most of us would feel lost because the terrain of the the minor prophets is so unfamiliar. For many of us, if we started with uh, 
if we started with Genesis 1 or if we started with John 1 or we started some other familiar places, you, you sort of immediately would look around and say, I'm, I'm familiar with the Gospels. I'm familiar with this story. But when you zoom in on Malachi 1.1, all the terrain is unfamiliar. So, so my goal this morning is to begin with sort of the entire planet of the Bible and then to, to keep zooming in until we arrive at Malachi 1.1. And as I do so, hopefully I'm going to provide the reason why people in 2014 would pay attention to somebody who said something 2,500 years ago. Why would we, sitting in this little small plot of ground in 2014, have any reason to pay attention to Malachi, who spoke so long ago to a different group of people? Hopefully I'll provide that answer. Now, this particular sermon will be a bit more challenging to follow, so I hope you got your coffee in you. And uh, it might be helpful to follow along as I try to give you the verse references and move through your Bible. Uh, It might be helpful just to kind of try to absorb it and then go back and maybe listen to the sermon or read the sermon notes and try to uh, get a picture uh, in your own study that you can't maybe get here just in this morning. So that's, that's my goal. I'm trying to, to step way back to try to look at the whole scope of the Bible. And then by the very end of the sermon, I'm just trying to land in Malachi 1.1. And then next week, starting there, we can move through the book of the Bible. But before, before I get to that effort, I want to make one preliminary comment about looking at the Bible. And that is to make good headway in understanding the Bible, you, you, you first have to start with a big dose of humility. So often people come to the Bible like a detective would come to a scene with a flashlight. You come and you're, you're, you're looking for contents. You're, you're digging into the Bible in order to test its truthfulness or its accuracy. You're, you're trying to figure out if there really is a God and if there is a God, what what he's really like. And I understand how you could have that approach. Yet, in reality, coming to the Bible like a detective with a flashlight is a little like coming to the sun with a flashlight. If I said to you, hey, the sun has just dropped into our orbit. Of course, you would have known it long before then, but let's just say it did. And it's 20 feet outside of our front door. And you all scrambled for a flashlight to go see the sun. It would really be completely unnecessary for you to have a flashlight. Because the the brightness and the penetration of the sun's rays would completely eliminate your need for a flashlight. And when you come to the Bible, it's the same kind of thing. You come saying, I'm going to examine it. But when you come to the Bible, you realize it's examining you. When you come to the Bible and you're trying to test its truthfulness and accuracy, the Bible's actually trying to test your truthfulness and accuracy. When you come to the Bible and you're trying to figure out if God is real, the Bible's trying to figure out if you're real. So there's really no need for a flashlight like a detective because when you hold the Bible in your hand, it's like the sun. It's completely examining you. It's completely examining your contents. You're not really examining its contents. It's examining you. 
And so when you come to the Bible, you have to come with a a big dose of humility. You have to understand that I'm underneath the Bible. I'm not over it. And so that's that's an important first step as you take a look at the word of the Bible, no matter where it is, is to realize I'm coming saying this is the word of God. So I'm going to be underneath it and it's going to be examining me rather than I'm over it trying to examine the Bible in that way. So in order to make good headway, that's one of the sort of characteristics that we have to have in our starting point. So let's zoom way out and then see if we can grasp the message of the whole Bible and then try to make our way down to this specific address of Malachi chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the verses that we read. In the New Testament, Matthew is the first of the Gospels. It begins by identifying the central character in the Bible. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the center. Everything orbits around Jesus. And if you notice in Matthew 1.1, Matthew immediately connects Jesus to two important Old Testament figures, Abraham and David. And then if you look from verse 2 down to verse 17, there's this long genealogy, and he's trying to get you through David and through Abraham to Jesus. And then in verse 17, the reason I read that is it's like a summary of the shape of the whole Bible. So let's just look at that together. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. This is sort of the way Matthew summarizes the the shape of the Bible. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation or the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, there are 14 generations. So you, you see three, but really there's five, five, a par, five part structure of the Bible. And so I put this up on a, this PowerPoint this morning so you can kind of just look at that and sort of see it as we move along. That might help you just get some orientation. And that's, that's my goal, just to try to get some orientation of where Matthew is in the Bible. So the first segment is everything before Abraham. So if you're thinking of your Bible, the first part of this big story is Genesis 1 uh, through Genesis chapter 12. And then the second part is Abraham to David, Abraham to these kings. And so, again, you can take your Bible and you can put your thumb on Genesis chapter 12 or Genesis chapter 13, and you just go to the kings that we'll look at in just a minute. And that's sort of the next segment of the Bible. And then the the third segment is David uh, to the deportation. So David's the king, but somehow we get deported to Babylon, which we'll talk about. And that's the prophets. So you go from kings and then you put your finger in the prophets. And then you get from the prophets or the exile to Christ. So you go from the prophets to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the final segment is everything after Christ. It's another way to say from Christ to Christ from his incarnation to his his return, from Acts chapter 1 to Revelation. So that's that's a helpful structure 
Uh, and it's helpful. So when you just come to your Bible, you think to yourself, well, I'm reading this particular verse. Or I'm reading this particular prophet. I'm re- reading this particular passage. Where is it in the structure of the Bible? It's like the, the Google Earth. We've got the whole Bible here, but now I'm trying to narrow down and I, I need some boundaries. I need some lines to help me know historically uh, where I am. And so that's where we're trying to make our direction towards uh, Malachi chapter 1. Let's start with Abraham or Adam to Abraham, Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. In, in Genesis 1, we learn that God bakes everything and he makes everything good. And it was God's original intent to bless all of mankind. And you can see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But as you know, we read further, Genesis chapter 3, human disobedience or sin disrupts everything. Adam is uh, our our representative. He stands for us as the representative of, of humanity. And when he has his failure in the Garden of Eden, this long shadow of death gets cast across all of creation and all across across time. But even in this, as God expels Adam and Eve from the Garden, there's hope. And you see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God's pronouncing these curses, and he gets to the curse on the serpent And he says this, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he, this offspring that's coming from the woman, he will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3, 15, very critical verse. Embedded in these cursings is this hope and biblical scholars refer to this as the first gospel. This is, this is where we begin to see the gospel unfold right here in Genesis chapter 3. The, the woman, from the woman would come a child, and this child will have the power to crush Satan and defeat death and sin itself. So it's the first gospel. And, of course, we know who that person is, that person who's born of a woman. That's the person of Christ. We know from the Apostle Paul, Paul refers to Jesus as the the second Adam or the last Adam. Meaning, Meaning the first Adam failed in the garden, but the second Adam, when he came and he was in the desert and he was tempted by Satan, he didn't fail. He succeeded. And on the cross, Jesus crushes Satan's power of destruction. And on Easter morning, he gives this... Uh, he provides proof of his power to defeat death itself by the resurrection. So when Paul says in this verse that most of you know, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. Uh, the old has, con- has gone. Behold, the new has come. What, one of the things he's trying to say is, see, when you, when you were without Christ, when you were underneath the headship of Adam, when he was your representative, you lived in this long shadow of death. But you've been born again. You have a new, a new head, as it were, Christ. And now we're standing in this long, bright, eternal sunshine 
of his power and his glory. I'm standing now as a, a whole new creation. I'm no longer living in the shadow. I'm living in the bright light of eternity. And that's what gives me hope. And Paul understands that when he's talking about that in Second Corinthians 5.17. Even though there's embedded this hope in Genesis 3.15 to get back to our place, the, the scenery moving forward from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12 isn't really pretty scenery. Sin has wreaked havoc on creation, and you can see it most notably in Noah and the Tower of Babel. And then you arrive at Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, and God's giving this great promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. And what you see there is that God still intends to bless his people. He's still coming towards his people and saying, my intent is to bless you. And we read this, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God promises Abraham and and, and a family. He promises Abraham a land. And and from Abraham's family and from this particular land, God is going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And, of course, we don't have time to unpack all the connections, but you can see how is it God's going to bless all people from Abraham's seed? How is it God going to bless people from this particular land? Who's the answer to all these promises? Well, it's Jesus. And you can see that in many ways in the, in the Old and the New Testament. Again, the, the biblical terrain between Abraham and David is pretty uneven. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph, and Joseph is the one who's sold into slavery, and he ends up down in Egypt. And although things go well for him in the beginning, after generations and generations, the Egyptians enslave these particular people, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And so they end up in slavery. But God uses Moses to rescue Abraham's family. God uses Joshua to bring the people into the promised land. And it's the land promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So now we've moved through this piece of history and Joshua has brought his people into the promised land just as God had planned. They're called Israelites. They established themselves in the promised land and eventually they have kings who rule over them. Saul, David, and then David's son named Solomon. Now probably the pinnacle of this uh, kingdom of Israel you could find in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20. There's a lot of different places you could go to in this story, and it's hard when you're telling a big story to just get a few, plot, few spots. But I, I think you can see sort of the, the pinnacle of what God wants. Listen to these verses from 1 Kings chapter 4. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You hear you hear that from Abraham? Your, your descendants are going to be numerous. And so here they are. They're as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And this is how they describe their life. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to Egypt, from Babylon to Egypt, this place that we think of as Israel. Solomon's reigning over this particular promised land. 
And God gave Solomon wisdom and breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. And men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So my guess is if you could have been standing with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and you could have heard God say to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants so numerous you can't even possibly count them. And I'm going to give you this land. And from this land, all of the nations are going to be blessed because of your existence. And then if you could transport yourself or if you could have lived 500 years and gotten to Solomon's reign and you would have sat there on the temple steps and thought, everyone's eating and drinking. Everyone is happy. Solomon's reigning over this land just as God had promised. And it just looks like this is the answer to God's promise in Genesis chapter 12. If you could have been that person, I think you would have said, we've arrived. What God promised back to Abraham in 1500 basically has been answered in the year 1000 BC. It's incredible. God never gave up on his promises. Despite the length of time, despite all the knuckleheaded moves by Abraham and his offspring, despite all the political powers of the world working against God's plan, despite all the bleak circumstances in the middle of the time, God loves his people, God keeps his promises. So when you stand here, if you're standing in 1 Kings chapter 4 and you're seeing this, I think it can feel a little bit like Genesis chapter 2 in the garden. It's just what God wanted. And everything seems to be working perfectly. God's man is on the throne. He's doing what God wants him to do. And and it feels a little bit like Genesis chapter 2. The good kingdom of Solomon is a bit like the good garden with with Adam. Unfortunately, it also includes the same problem. And that is the sinful human heart. And so I just want to help you understand what happened. And you make the comparisons back to Genesis chapter 3. The good kingdom of Solomon is disrupted by human disobedience. The disobedience begins with the king and spreads to all the people. The whole country falls under a curse. God's people are cast out of the promised land. Do you see how it's so much just a a reflection of what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. But unlike Genesis chapter 3, it doesn't happen all at once. God sees his people and their hearts slipping away. So what does he do? He sends prophet after prophet to them. And he says, come back. I mean, I see you slipping away. You're, You're not doing the things that you used to do. You're not loving me like you used to. We're not connected like we were. So I'm going to keep sending one person after another to speak on my behalf to get you to come back. And you get a little flavor of that from Jeremiah. When Jeremiah says this, the Lord said to Jeremiah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and you followed me through the desert. Yet you're you're straying so far from me. You're following after worthless idols. And I can see you're becoming 
worthless yourself. You, you were my bride. Where I went, you went. We had this great relationship, but I can see your, your strains on sending Jeremiah, sending these prophets to say, come back. God sends his prophets and he says, basically, you're cheating on me. And he sends these prophets for 400 years. One after another, after another, for 400 years and says, you're you're cheating. He's like a guy who can't get rid of a bad girlfriend. The girlfriend keeps cheating on him, but he just can't let go of the bad girlfriend. You and I would say, cut that person loose. But for 400 years, he he keeps coming back and says, I know know you've been cheating on me, but I I want you to come back. My heart is still for you. I I still want to bless you, but they have a heart of stone. And so God eventually sends them out of the promised land into the exile. Now, if I'm God at this point, I'm pretty frustrated. I mean, Adam fouled it up. And in his depravity spills over onto everybody else in such a magnificent, in a terrible way, so terribly that I basically have to start over with Noah, which really doesn't do me any good because he's got some of the same problems and he spills out all over everywhere. And so then I say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to go through Abraham. But Abraham's offspring didn't do much better. In fact, they tried to do everything they could to, do, to ensure defeat of God's plan. But God is faithful, and eventually God establishes this glorious kingdom of wealth and peace, and everyone's happy, but the people still have a bad heart. And they trade in God for things that are worthless, and they're becoming worthless. And God sees it, so he sends prophet after prophet, but they just don't want to follow God. You know the verse in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You know that verse. Well, if I had written that verse and I was God, the steadfast Lord has ceased. The steadfast love of the Lord has ceased. His mercies have uh, come to an end. And uh, this morning, I'm done. I mean, that's what I would have written if I were God. No need to return. I'm done. I'm, I'm cutting you off. And so we can all be thankful that I'm not God this morning. But incredibly, again, just like in Genesis, embedded in this message as the people are being thrown out of the promised land into the exile, embedded in that message is a message of hope. Again, you can see it in a number of places, but... This is what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord says. He's looking at his bride and he says this. Your wound is incurable. Your injury is beyond healing. There's no one to plead your cause. No remedy for your sore. No healing for you. All of your allies have forgotten you and they don't care anything about you. Now, it seems pretty hopeless at this point. 
And if you've just been coming to Christ Community Church just for the last two weeks, you know what the next words are. What are they? But God. And that's exactly what God says. But, but I will restore you to health. I will heal your wounds. I will have compassion. See, right when it seems most hopeless and you're being cast out, even by me for purposes that are really and terrible, I'm still going to embed in this curse my promises to still bless, to still be coming to you, the people who have a heart of stone. And he says this. Now, listen carefully. A leader will be from, from one of their own. A ruler will arise from this people. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. And once again, you will be my people and I will be your God. Who is that leader? It's Christ. See, Christ is the central figure in all of the Bible. And Jeremiah is just saying, there is a leader who's going to come. There is a leader who's going to reestablish a connection between people, between God and his people. And no matter how bleak the current circumstances, God loves his people. God keeps his promises. God intends to bless. Okay, now, you're doing well so far, and I'm trying to land this plane on Malachi 1.1. So hang with me. There are 70 years of exile in Babylon and God keeps his promises to bring his people back to the land, back to the promised land. You can read that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they've rebuilt the wall. They've rebuilt the temple. They have these promises of God that I'm going to bring a new king. And while you're waiting on that king to come, this is what I want you to do. You be faithful. I mean, you have all this history and you've seen from your ancestors to your own heart, this desire not to follow after God, but you can see I have come. I'm, I keep saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm, I'm coming for you. And I'm telling you now, I'm going to send a king like no other king. But until that time, while you're waiting, this is what I want you to do. I want you to wait faithfully on me. Can you do that? Well, the waiting is longer than they had anticipated. Sometimes as they wait, God seems distant. Sometimes as they waited, God didn't always operate as they expected. As they waited, worship became routine. And you won't be surprised to learn that while they were waiting, waiting, their faith began to erode. And despite all this history of God's faithfulness, the people began to question God and question his timetable. One commentary says this, waiting periods can be like sandpaper, at first causing imperceptible abrasions in your faith yet which often end in cynicism and a loss of touch with the living God. See, when, you, when you're in a waiting period and you're waiting for the arrival of the king, sometimes that waiting period can be like sandpaper and it's just trying to wear out your faith, maybe imperceptible at first, but then you begin to question 
God, all these people who have all the history of God's incredible faithfulness, these people who are called to stand firm in their faith while they wait on the arrival of the king, these people whose faith is eroding while they're waiting, these are the people Malachi is sent to talk to. He's their preacher. And when you read Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the Lord, word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, and what's the first thing God says? I have loved you. This is the one thing you should know above all things. If you've forgotten everything else, you should know, I've been loving you from the very beginning through all the terrible history. I'm still coming towards you in love. And what's their response? How have you loved us? I mean, how deflating. How discouraging for these people of all people to say, I'm not sure you've really been loving us, God. In fact, I'd like to ask you some questions about your love. Because during my waiting, things aren't working out like I thought. How quickly faith is eroded in the midst of waiting in difficult circumstances. And you can make the application, can't you, to yourself? We're a people who have the benefit of even more history than these people. We have the benefit of the cross. Now we're a people who wait for the arrival, not the arrival, but the return of the king. And while we wait, God says, hey, you have this history. You know my heart. You know your own heart. And I continue to come towards you and bless you. You know that. You know my love for you. So while you wait for my return, you remain faithful. You stand firm in your faith. And what Malachi will do for his people is what Malachi will do for us. And he will examine whether we've remained faithful as we've waited. Let's pray. Lord, uh, trying to, to get you in a screen is impossible. Try to whittle your providence down to a bite-sized address like Malachi 1.1 is difficult. But it's not difficult to see the pattern of humankind. It's, it's, we see it printed in our own hearts. Why Malachi is relevant to us is because we are waiting And I fear that we have had an erosion of faith in the waiting. Much like the people that Malachi addresses. So my hope is that you would shore up the faith of the people here at Christ Community Church in the next two months. And and to shore that up by this man coming in and drilling down into the lives of his people. And you drill down into, into our own hearts. 
and see what you find. Replace our our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh is our prayer in these next two months. In Jesus' name, amen.